the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline. All right, we're back. Let's see here. Three lines open, one 888 We're on the other side of our break. we got a whole nother hour to go. Love to hear from you. Um, let me see. Did we? Did Sean drop or do we still have Sean? Let's see. Sean, are you still there? All right. Still here. Okay. Um, so I, I'm, I'm sure you, you comprehended what I said about wanting to make sure that as you struggle with um, – you know, your own spiritual need that as the head of the household, you got to model for your wife and kids a level of discretion that would uh, supplement your wife's needs. So, like, this is a rule that's not axiomatic, but it's a general rule. Uh, the wife in the family that takes care of the kids in the family will often see uh, different needs in the church than the husband will. This is not always the case, but it is frequently the case that the husband being the high priest of the home will have a greater focus in upon the content of the preaching and the teaching in that local church than he will the other ancillary and significant elements in the church, i.e. fellowship and different ministries and things like that, that would begin to nurture and cultivate the needs of moms and kids. And so that, you know, moms will develop relationships with other women. The kids will develop relationships because, as you already stated, Sean, uh, we are mandated to be part of a local body so that we can cultivate self uh, growth as well as participate in the shared growth of the body of Christ. And the the family model is largely how that's done. And uh, and therefore, frequently, but not all the time, and sometimes it's even in the reverse. There will be men who will be completely careless. Uh, I don't know how that's so, being the priest of the home, but they will be completely careless as as to the level of faithfulness in the pulpit to the preaching of the person and work of Christ. And uh, just, just, you know, don't mind kind of getting along with the program. Uh, but the wise will, uh, in some cases, be more passionate about um, about the gospel as we preach it uh, than, than even the husband. So in your situation, you've got to make sure that um, the discretion to care for your wife at the level of making sure that her needs are met are not um, sacrificed at, you know, the kind of growing uh, discontent that you might have in your own soul week in and week out uh, when you go in and you listen to preaching where the pastor has not been taught. And largely, this is what's going on. I've been doing this for a long time now and engaged in the kerygma, the preaching, uh, from a Several different levels from 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 the pastoral level, from the professorial le- level, from the uh, 
the seminary level, from from scholarship level, his, history level, meaning that um, there is a massive sort of debate and and war always going on uh, in in the, in the seminaries and in Bible colleges about what to give to the people of God from the pulpit, and this is why you have seen uh, churches abandon wholesale preaching of the doctrines of grace and the person and work of Jesus Christ over the decades and centuries, and uh, I might even dare say millennium, because they are catering to felt needs, and they will look out in the congregation, and they will recognize that the congregation uh, is interested in something other than the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that being the case, they will water down a soteriological uh, fervor, which keeps us all looking to Jesus, reminding us that we're sinners and in need of his redemption and therefore thankful for his grace in our life and begin to uh, deal with other, what I call secondary, tertiary, and very often remote issues of, you know, relationships relationship and stewardship and 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 other things that are important but they can never be at the expense of the preaching of the gospel which is where Christ himself as the head of the church and his visitation of the first century church in Revelation chapter 2 started off his admonition of the seven churches which apply to all of us that we've left our first love. So I, I, if we look very carefully at the church at Ephesus which had a radically uh, comprehensive gospel privilege with the Apostle Paul speaking to them the way he did in Ephesians 1 through 6 and yet in some 40-50 years Christ said you have left your first love. And leaving your first love simply means that you abandon a passion for the person of Christ, even if you're still preaching, even if you're still teaching, even if you're still coming to church, even if you're still doing all of the different ministries in the church, you can be doing all of that and be in love with that and not in love with Christ. And therefore, for Christ, that is an offense. He's offended when we're not in love with him and in love with him to do what he said, preach this gospel to every creature. And he left us a model in Paul as to to what extent that that preaching should be done and, and the, the depth of expression with which it should be executed. As I stated before, the Apostle Paul was a preacher of the gospel of Christ uh, imminently, and he left us that model. And, and when we are not doing that, then the people of God are going to suffer. We're going to suffer uh, apathy. We're going to suffer coldness. We're going to suffer uh, a lack of discernment. We're going to suffer uh, pitfalls of all kinds uh, in terms of fads and, and all kind of new fads ideas that come in as a substitute for the real spiritual diet that we need, and that is the bread of life, Christ, and the water of life, the spirit of Christ, and the word of life, which is the instrumental means by which those two dynamics occur in our soul. Um, I only say that to affirm you, Sean, in what you are struggling through, and you are not by yourself. A lot of the people of God are going through that, as Amos chapter 8, 11 puts it. There's a famine in the land, not of hearing, uh, hearing, uh, eating of bread or drinking of water, but of hearing the words of the Lord, and, and that is a problem in our generation. But as you already know, 
You want to make sure that you are loving your wife and children to make sure that when you're working on Sunday that they are still in a community where they can they can get something. The only time I would say just you know make a beeline out of there is when uh, when there are really problematic doctrines that uh, not only obscure Christ but deny Christ. I'm going to give you the last word before we go. Oh, thanks, Pastor. Yeah, well said. Um, a couple things. I'll be very brief. Um, I certainly can see that dynamic in the house with uh, the different uh, needs. Uh, need how how the wife would look at it in that way. Mm-hmm. So she looks at it in that way um, as it relates to the kids and everything. She is certainly um, uh, serious about the doctrine. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. Preaching as well. So. Um, so I see that dynamic, and I appreciate that that um, the idea to be to have discretion because we can tend to uh, if we can see something, we like to let everybody know we can see it. Exactly. Vocal, be vocal about hey, this is what's wrong, and 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 sometimes that can do more harm than good if we're not wise in how we uh, how we say it, you know. Um, but and then also. Um, the the thing you were saying about the famine, um, it, it's it's very it feels that way. It, yeah. it can feel that way. And um, one one of the reasons why your ministry has blessed us so much is just because it's like I, I, I'm not likening myself to Elijah, but the the idea of Elijah being in the famine and the raven would come and drop food, or they he'd have that little stream of water that God was providing with him, and it it's felt as though over the years, the gospel preaching that we've had the ability to hear from grace has really felt like that that provision that God is sustaining us with in the midst of a famine. But nonetheless, though that is a blessing and we're grateful for it, it's not a substitute for being engaged vitally in a local church, and we're aware of that. But So it's just been kind of a struggle. Um, and uh, the there's one thing, one more thing I was going to say, if it's okay. Mm-hmm, um, sure. Uh, uh, there's a, it's it's pretty amazing. Um, for since, since I've been listening to your ministry, like it's almost like clockwork. It's very, it's, it's amazing. Um, I'll be studying in my own time, and then I listen to the teachings like on Sundays and Fridays and Saturdays and even Lifeline and stuff and the very passages that you're studying or you're preaching on that week, I'm in. Right. It's like clockwork. Literally every single sermon that's taught, I'm already studying it, or you were studying it and you're preaching it, and it's like, I know that that's the Spirit of God. Absolutely. But that type of supernatural uh, revelation of God's Word given to us by the Spirit, I'm seeing, I'm experiencing, and I'm seeing the glories of Christ mm-hmm. that are being are in the preaching, and then what God is revealing to me personally is being affirmed mm-hmm. in the preaching that I'm hearing five hundred miles away. You right. know, um, and these are matters of the heart that God is showing me that I'm not speaking to anybody. You know, and so um, when I'm experiencing that, and when I sit at a church where I'm not getting that. That's where the, the the struggle is, and 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 if if what I'm hearing, if I'm is as a man, as a husband, what I should put first is 
utilize the discretion with my family so to not be a stumbling block for my wife and kids and work through that in a in a in a godly way is that is that kind of what you're saying or only in part i'm going to that's why i probably that's why i said i probably would want to e- want you to email me so i can give you a category of things that i see taking place now that we're extending our conversation i got 4 minutes with you which is cool um i'll, I'll say this and i've done this with men all over the place particularly younger men uh, first of all, what's happening with you being able to be in your own private studies and personal studies and have them coincidentally, which is a, uh, you know, a, a providential uh, act of God to to correspond with the trajectory of our teaching at Grace is called ministry. God's going to always give you a ministry that is going to augment your own personal devotion to him. And in that sense, I become a proxy pastor to you, as I am with a lot of people, because that's the way pastoral ministry actually works. Every believer who is faithful to God has a pastor or several, but they will have primary pastors through whom God will speak into your life to edify you and build you up. And you sit under that ministry wherever you are. And in our context, they can be all over the world as they are with me as well. And benefit from uh, from 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 the the teaching that you get uh, from grace. This is true with pastors again across the board, and so you definitely want to continue to sustain that that metaphor of uh, Elijah with the raven, because in the you know quasi. Um, uh, wilderness sojourn that you and you and your wife are dealing with, God has still been faithful to you. But here's a second tier thought that I want you to consider, Sean. Uh, I want you to consider uh, the possibility of ministry. I want you to think about uh, whether or not God might be calling you uh, to 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 uh, a deeper commitment to him. Word in, word out is really the design of the gospel. There's a point at which when you are beginning to comprehend the word of God at a level in which uh, it's stirring your heart, it might be that God is calling you into a, a teaching level. And that could start in your own home with your family. Of course, your family has to be your church, as my family was my church. I had uh, a wife and eight kids, and we were churching all the time from the time that they were in the womb all the way up. You know, I had a congregation to preach to two or three times a week. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was, you know, one of those zealous times, but God allowed that for me to um, to excogitate these blessings that he had in me. And then when I discovered that I had the capacity for exposition or teaching, because exegesis is learning, exposition is teaching, um, you know, I sought opportunities beyond my family. And the next thing I know, I was doing a Bible study with a couple families. And uh, and that lasted for a number of years until I was called into uh, the office of deacon, a teaching deacon, and then a teaching elder, and then a senior teaching elder, and then ultimately a pastor. That is not uncommon when God is really investing in you two things, Sean, uh, a, a, a growing comprehensive of biblical truth and then also the capacity and hunger that agitates you, you know, when you don't have it reciprocated in the preaching. 
um, or you don't have the opportunity to vent like Elihu in, in Job chapter 30, uh, 29, 30, 31, 32. As a young man, we want to share the word of God. And it might be that where you are in your community, you might be able to uh, start a, 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 a little Bible study, midweek Bible study once a month, twice a month. You might want to think about that. I may be out in left field, but I just got a feeling maybe, maybe, and I'm talking to thousands of people out there, maybe y'all better pray for Sean because this is how God does it. I can tell you now he he has us as tip makers and and, and all kind of sheep herders, and at the same time, he's creating a fire in our bosom, and that may be the case for you. If you want to expand this topic, email me, and I'll chat more with you. In the meanwhile, I'll, I want you to give greetings from me to your wife and your family, and uh, look forward to hearing you again. I got to go pay some bills. Thanks for the call. Going to pay some bills, as I stated. All the lines are open, one 367 All the lines are open. I'm thankful for Sean. He helped facilitate a very, very important dialogue. If you want to pick up on this dialogue, I'd be glad to hear from you on his end or on my end. Whether you agree or disagree, let's talk about it. 1-888-367-5329. 1-888-367-5329. I'll be right back. And now, back to Lifeline. All right, the time is 619 on the Monday edition of Lifeline. Waiting for your call, 1-888-367-5329, 1-888-367-5329. If you have a question, you have a concern. Uh, you just heard from Sean at length uh, for him and his blessed family. Uh, matters that of ex- are of extreme significance to, to believers uh, all over the world, the, this matter of, uh, of 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 healthy, spiritual nurturing and and and, and fellowships in the body of Christ, where um, where 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 the gospel is of of, of primacy in, in our lives. That's such a uh, such a critical matter. If you, if, again, if we were to stay in Revelation chapter uh, two and three and talk about the seven churches, uh, Christ felt compelled from heaven. To write through John by the Spirit to the seven churches about their behavior and their conduct, which means Christ is looking in on us. I know that lots of pastors are listening. That's just the way that it is, um, and I'm thankful for it. Uh, some agree, some don't. That really is incidental to um, to the fact that we listen to other pastors. Shepherds listen to shepherds. Under shepherds listen to other under shepherds. And that is because we need to be careful to make sure that um, our plumb line is straight, that we are really working with the truth of God's word, with a right message and a right motive. And of course, the right method. Message, motive, and method is critical in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In a world where Christ has been shredded and completely dismantled as the uh, the, the barbaric, uh, treacherous uh, destroyers of our Savior took his robe and tore it in pieces, if you will, uh, shredding him uh, in, in an attempt to di- shame him and uh, humiliate him and, and uh, confirm him as cursed. Cursed is everyone that hangs upon the tree. And they cast lots for his garment and parted them, if you will, seamless. Uh, And so we do have a real concern in our generation with men and women who are malnutritioned in the word of God 
And an even, an even greater malnutrition is in the gospel of the word of God, the gospel contained in it. As I was saying to Sean, you know, our seminaries is riddled with a departure from faithful presentation of the person of Christ and the work of Christ. They use his name. They talk about him, but they do not believe him to be the second person of the blessed divine triune Godhead. They don't. Most people will just use his name because he's, you know, it's a popular name and it's a good way to put on a spurious and pseudo identification with people until you get behind their words and begin to examine the meaning that they have around who Jesus is. And uh, and you come to find out that there is a uh, there is a woeful unbelief around the fact that he is from eternity to eternity, equal with the father and the spirit in nature, distinct in his personhood. He is from everlasting to everlasting, very God of very God. And the Bible can clearly demonstrate this from Genesis to Revelation uh, incontrovertibly. And yet that's not held by many, many pastors who climb into pulpits and pretend that they love Jesus and all they love is a human Jesus, a social justice Jesus, a a Jesus of materialism, a Jesus that is kind of like Plato, uh, fitted and shaped for whatever is needed to meet the felt needs of the people in the audience. And uh, that's a sad reality a denial of every cardinal doctrine of biblical truth that constitutes the true body of Christ from the days of the apostles up to the present time in terms of his atoning work and his accomplished redemption and the the father's eternal counsel summed up in the person of Christ and, and his chosen people drawn and saved from every nation, kindred tribe and tongue, not by accident, but by predestinating love and, his irresistible grace that will bring everyone for whom Christ died into the sphere of the gospel and bring about a salvation of their soul so that the salvation of Christ is uh, in no way whatsoever a failure. That is to say, none for whom Christ died will perish under the wrath of God because the gospel will be preached successfully all over the world. And while many will take the broad road to destruction, the few that find it will find it because Christ will have revealed himself by his spirit to them in the gospel. And this Holy Ghost will have granted them faith to see Jesus in all of his glory. And thus the soul will have been quickened, illuminated, called, and it will run after Christ as the song of Solomon puts it, draw me and I will run after you. This is gospel preaching has been from the days of the apostle Paul up to this very present moment. But this is not the Jesus that's preached in most of your pulpits. He is hijacked and held hostage by the uh, human uh, volition of men. And, and, uh, you know, unless men themselves give him the right to save them, give him the right to be their savior. And Jesus just hanging out and uh, sadly not able to enter into their hearts. He's knocking, but they won't let him in. Well, if they don't let him in, they will perish under the wrath of God. But if Christ will ever enter into your heart, it will be because he has sovereignly kicked the door in. Ask the Apostle Paul. 
And so this Christ is not preached in many of our churches today. And when that begins to occur, where we begin to take away from the word of the gospel, uh, then we're going to succumb to other fads and and uh, trends. And and uh, it, this is what I call the human dilemma. People come to church to hear entertaining messages that really uh, cater to their felt needs. This is a long time, long standing uh, condemnation in the church. And what Christ said in Revelation chapter two and three, first, he started with Ephesus saying that you are preaching and teaching, but you just love your preaching and teaching. You don't love me. You are discerning those who call themselves Jews and are not. So you know the difference between a works gospel and the gospel of grace. But that grace is not keeping a vital fire in your heart for me. And there is a big difference when you listen to preachers who are gifted in preaching, but who do not love Christ. That is the essential difference between the anointing. That actually saves and sanctifies and edifies and builds up and draws people, God's people into a deeper love and and commitment to Jesus. And that is the preacher being in love with Christ. And then he said to the church at uh, uh, Smyrna, you're doing well. You've been ordained by my father to suffer many things, endure persecution. You'll have it for 10 days. That's symbolic. That's not literal. You'll have it for a short period of time, but you'll overcome. He that endures to the end will receive a crown of life. Blessed is that man. And so the church at Smyrna, uh, bearing the fruits of suffering for Christ's name, was commended. But then we get to the church of what? Thyatira. And Thyatira is like the churches of our present day where it was abounding in good works. You can read it for yourself. And Christ always commended the church first for what it was doing good. And and we ought to acknowledge that. Thyatira was doing good works and they were abounding in those works, but they had completely collapsed under a false gospel of syncretism and uh, paganism. And they began to uh, do what is called the cultural thing of egalitarianism and had women in the pulpit becoming leaders like Jezebel, that symbolic terminology that's used in Revelation chapter two, which Jesus says, I have this against you. You have that woman, Jezebel, who teaches my servants to commit fornication and uh, and eat things uh, devoted to idols. And that is nothing other than pretending to love Christ, but at the same time being completely compelled to and loving the world for Thyatira was nothing any different than Corinth when it came to uh, cultural convenience. There was not a complete separation from the idolatries of the world. And Jesus had to let that church know that he saw that. See, one of the dangers of our local churches, you guys, is that we can have those communities uh, be kind of like uh, reservations, uh, Indian reservations, Native American reservations, where what goes on on the reservation stays on the reservation. And you can lose a broader periphery of the real assessment of what's actually going on in your church in terms of a departure from commitment to Christ. And what Christ had to do to Thyatira was warn her that he would kill her children with death. That is to say, Christ saw the leaven that would leaven the whole lump of Thyatira which looked really good on the outside. Why? Because it was doing all kinds of uh, altruistic, benevolent, good works, outreach ministries, and 
uh, care ministries and and dealing with the poor and dealing with the uh, you know the the uh, less fortunate, uh, engaging in all of the kinds of ministries that you and I would be considered commendable. We would receive rewards, placards, all kind of uh, celebratory expressions uh, by our culture for having engaged in. And yet, Christ said to that very church, "If you don't repent, I will kill your children with death." Yeah, so, you know, we can look one way on the outward, but Christ really sees what's going on. And then he dealt with that precious church, Sardis. You guys remember that. He said to Sardis, you, you, you're like many of our reformed churches. You have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. You have the doctrines of grace in your history. You have the creeds and confessions. You have forms and catechisms and, and, and all of that. You, you've got all of the history. And you even have preaching that will put on a kind of mode of of order and orthodoxy, but it's still absent of a passionate commitment to the vital presence of the Spirit of God essential for life. And life is a critical testimony that confirms the credibility of a local church being the temple of the living God. So, yeah, you can go into a church and you can read uh, their three forms of unity. You can read the, the, the you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith and you can hear them uh, recite the formulations of those doctrines in terms of the Lord's days and the teachings, etc. If they even do that still today, I grew up in that. That is a, uh, you know, a breath of fresh air compared to what's going on outside of the reform community. But in the reform community, they're still dead in many ways. No passionate celebration of the glories of God in Christ that would move their soul to tears and to joy and to jubilation and then to commitment to go out and tell men and women about Christ. Just did. That's why their communities are shrinking down to a handful of people. Just kind of like a time warp when you go into many of those churches because they are trapped by the culture of tradition rather than the reality of Jesus. Ah. And these are the things that we have to deal with every day. And then we move on to the church at Philadelphia and we move on then to the to the church at Laodicea. And Philadelphia was a small church suffering for preaching the, the gospel. And Christ told her, you know, you have a little strength. In other words, you're preaching. And uh, I would hope that we would have that commendation, a little strength. Keep preaching. You're going to suffer, but you'll be OK. He that overcomes. I will make him a pillar in the in the house of my God. And then he finally gets to Laodicea, that pathetic church that was wealthy and prosperous and restored itself two or three times after earthquakes and all sorts of devastations. But the cost was the gospel disappeared and it became one of your your neo liberal churches that have a form of godliness, but denied the power thereof and is rich and wealthy and prosperous and didn't need God at all. And you've got those churches and those communities. It's the most scary thing in the world to be right up against hell in a community of people who think they're headed to heaven and they're dead. This is why the gospel has to start with men being dead. Not just sick, not just misguided, dead. See, when that's the case, then we can we can only leave it up to God who raises the dead. I got to take a break. I'll be right back. 
And now back to Lifeline. Okay, we've got 20 minutes. If you want to call in, you are certainly welcome to engage me in uh, any topic that we have been dealing with or one that you think is appropriate for our audience to uh, be a part of. one 367 329 When we last departed, I used the term dead um, simply because... At the heart of the need of the the gospel uh, in the hearts of men is the fact that men are spiritually dead. It's just the fact. It was Ezekiel that was taught by God the true condition of national Israel. Uh, National Israel was living and functioning and thriving in its apostate condition. Uh, straddling between Jerusalem and and Babylon as they were being led captive in the days of of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel wasn't uh, quite clear on the desperate state of these very jubilant, uh, albeit spiritually dead, uh, Hebrew people. Um, this is where Christ said to the church at Sardis, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. You can look very much alive on the outward. You can actually even be so zealously given to, uh, again, all sorts of outward forms of good works that everyone looking at you will commend you. And yet Jesus will know <clears throat> whether or not you have life in you at all. True, spiritual, eternal, God-given, divine life. And the matters of preaching the gospel, again, is not the matter of merely trying to persuade men to abandon one God and pick up another God. The matters of preaching the gospel is the matter of men being called to do something that is within them intrinsically impossible to do. And that's to raise the dead. It was Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night, assuming that he was a colleague of Jesus Christ and that he was on an equal par with the master. And he called him good master, as flatterers often do. And he says, I know we know representing the Pharisees. We know that you're a teacher come from God because no one can do what you do except you come from God. And he was very confident about what the Old Testament said about uh, one coming from God, having the capacity to do miracles. But Jesus immediately embarked upon upon admonishing him about his spiritual blindness and his spiritual deadness. He said, except you be born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. And today you're hard pressed to ask a pastor what it means to be born again. And he'll tell you it means to accept Jesus into your life and make him your Lord and savior. And he will save you. I mean, that's like asking the question whether or not the child is alive by virtue of them being able to say I'm alive. Point being is the child is alive because that child has life and the life is evidenced by them being able to say they are alive. But just because they say they are alive does not evidence that they have life that does not cause their life rather, but evidence that they have life. And when men and women are spiritually dead, it's it's evident. And that spiritual life has to come from somewhere else. It can't come from you. Everything that lives comes into being from the consequence and efforts of someone else. When the Bible says that men are dead in trespasses and sins, 
That means we're in a condition where we can't help ourselves. And here is what preaching really looks like when it's done right, where God is interested in the saving of dead men and where God employs the usefulness of a submissive servant who comprehends that he's standing between the living God who can do something that only he can do through that man who is being made to employ a methodology of which if God does not infuse that methodology, nothing happens to the dead bones. So the hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel says. And he carried me out into the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones. Now, these bones represent national Israel in the historical context, but they represent all mankind in the largest spiritual context. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and all are spiritually dead. The wages of sin is death. And he caused me to pass by them round about and behold, there were very many in the open valley and lo, they were very dry. Verse two says that God caused Ezekiel to properly comprehend the extensive damage and the extent to which the people for which he was caused to look at were in their spiritual condition. Absolutely dead. That's essential to the preaching of the gospel, that the minister of the gospel must understand the proper diagnosis of men's condition if he's going to preach in any kind of honorable way for God. That men, if they're lost and outside of Christ, they're dead. Verse 3, And he said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, thou knowest. You notice what he's not doing. He's not saying, yeah, all they have to do is make a decision. All they have to do is accept Christ. All they have to do to live is do something which is as paradoxical and oxymoronic as anything can be because a dead man can't do anything. And then God said to him, prophesy upon these bones and say to them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Ah, the human instrument now is called to employ another instrument by which he speaks to the dead. Of course, this verse is describing that historic and uh, invariable method of preaching. Speak to these bones. Now, how does faith come, ladies and gentlemen? By hearing and hearing by the word of God, does it not? Does not God have to give a hearing ear? Does he not have to give a seeing eye? Does he not have to give men and women life? Faith is the evidence of life. And so Ezekiel speaks, verse 5, Thus said the Lord God unto these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. Notice that as a consequence of Ezekiel's preaching, God will then use the Spirit of God, that's the Ruah, to breathe into them life. They don't get life before hearing the Word of God, the Word of God being preached or proclaimed. Verse 6, And I will lay sinew upon you, and I will bring flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Who did this? Did these dead bones do it, or did God do it? Did these dead bones cry out to God, or did God breathe on them? Did these dead bones seek the Lord, or did the Lord seek them? You notice the active verb is, I will, I will, I will, on God's part. Notice. 
So I prophesied as he commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking, and the bones came together to his bone. And when I beheld, lo, sinew and flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. What happens here? He preaches and God moves to bring them into a formation away from the chaos and and dismemberment and the dryness of them being in their former state, which is a spiritual type of being in trespasses and sins. He he restructures their anatomy so that they are now a unified body, but and they have flesh. But they're not alive. We would say theologically by application, that's how you create church folks. You take them from the former state of of allowing them to come into the church. You might even baptize them without fully affirming whether or not they're truly born again. And they look like they're alive, but they're still dead. No breath in them at all. Still dead. Don't really love Jesus. Don't really want Jesus. Don't really pursue Jesus. They just kind of glad somebody cares enough about them to get them off the street. And then here's what God says. Then he said unto me, prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind. Now Ezekiel has to call upon the wind, the ruah, the spirit. Exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 3. Except you be born of the spirit, you have no life in you. You can't see the kingdom of God. Except you be born of the spirit and of water, or rather water and of spirit, you will not enter the kingdom of God. He said, now speak to the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came in unto them, and they lived and stood upon their feet, an exceeding great army. The two major things that the Church of Christ is depicted by, by analogy, although there are dozens of analogies to which can be applied to the body of Christ, we are a family. We are the family of God, but we also are an army. When God saves you, he brings you into his family, adopts you in the beloved. You become part of the family of God. There's no doubt about that. But then he also calls you into his army because you're living in a warfare. You're living in a battle zone. You're living in the context of conflict and you need the whole armor of God that you might stand against the wiles of the devil. So when a man or woman is properly taught what it means to be truly born again, which is a work of grace that God does alone for which he gets all the glory alone, then immediately upon the honeymoon of being brought into union with Christ so that you are in him and he's in you, you got to now put on the armor. You got to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord. And you got to be ready to deal with the battles that are coming at you while you are in the spiritual womb, much more when you are standing visibly identified with the true and the living God. Here comes the enemy. And what are we called to do? Stand. Having all the armor of God on, having put on the whole armor of God. That's the analogy here. Paul takes it up. Peter takes it up. It's in the book of Revelation, chapter 19 and 11 and following. So this is where we are in our present culture, ladies and gentlemen, uh, in our churches that don't take the word of God seriously. We don't believe in the need for the third person to do a radical work of transformation and life giving. We do not believe in the necessity of the infallible word of God as inerrant truth in terms of the preaching of the gospel being the means by which men and women are brought to life and faith in Jesus Christ. 
And we don't believe that uh, we are in a fierce warfare that the enemy is waging relentlessly against us, ourselves, our wives, our children, our children's children and the church of the living God. But the evidence is very clear that our our churches are under major assault and attack. And I'm not just talking politically. I'm talking spiritually. And I'm talking intimately. I'm talking close warfare. I'm talking I'm talking about right up on you warfare. I'm talking about wrestling with principalities and powers. I'm talking about wrestling with spiritual dynamics. I'm talking about wrestling with imaginations that exalt themselves against the knowledge of Christ. That's what you're dealing with, child of God. If you're in this battle, got to take a break, pay, pay a few more bills, and then we'll close out our program. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. And we are back a few minutes before we close. And I wanted to share with you a story that I received from my son-in-law. Always shares with me, with me little pithy stories that often um, spark and stimulate very interesting thoughts uh, that are largely theological in nature. This is about a young lady who happens to be my hero. She's 22 years old. She's a college student. Her name is Sophia Humphrey. Now, you can read about her, rather see the video uh, excerpt from Hayward's KRON News. You can go online, Hayward KRON News, and look up Sophia Humphrey. Uh, Sophia Humphrey was in an elevator with Jermaine Jeremiah Brim, the man she saw stab Mr. Williams to death on the BART train. The story is absolutely phenomenal. I don't have time to go into it at length. This young lady, Sophia Humphreys, was uh, brave enough to remain present while everybody else scattered and ran for their lives. In many cases, you know, under many circumstances, rightfully so. But Sophia, this young, petite, Caucasian uh, lady, uh, if, I, if I'm getting her, her, her uh, ethnicity right, uh, in her uh, compassion and love for humanity. Humanity recognized that this was not a moment to abandon uh, the said Williams who was being stabbed by a deranged homeless person who was barefooted and wanted to take Mr. Williams shoes and Mr. Williams awakened to wrestle with him and somehow a knife was uh, discovered which was either taken from Mr. Williams who was seeking to defend himself by this one Jeremiah Brim who took the knife and savagely began to slit his throat and stab him in many parts of his body. And when he finally ran, Miss uh, Humphreys, a 22-year-old young uh, uh, aspiring student headed for uh, the field of nursing, went and uh, put her hand on his neck to stop the bleeding uh, and called for uh, uh, EMT to come uh, to to help him, uh, having the BART to not continue to take off because often the BART trains don't know. And the story is compelling. Not only was she humble about what she said, she admitted that what was going on was a calling on her life to love people and serve people uh, because she was a Christian. That was the last thing she stated. Um, her love for Christ led her to be compassionate in a time when everybody else was fleeing. This is what we call bravery in the midst of dire circumstances and our first responders, firemen and policemen and, and doctors and nurses. 
um, are some of the bravest people on planet Earth, all wonderful types of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. So with me, our Shiro for today is Sophia Humphreys, of which we will give thanks for her being a product of the Bay Area and uh, having uh, stood the test of faith and commitment to Jesus and love for uh, her fellow human being, of which she would get nothing in return for from him, but she did comfort him and talk to him and encouraged him. And I, my words cannot even begin to tell you how blessed her, her, her tranquility and focus was, as many of them who are trained to be first responders are. But go to Cron News, look up Sophia Humphreys, the recent uh, BART staff, and uh, have your soul blessed to the level of thanking God for integrity, for the integrity of the upright shall guide them. Until then, have a great Thanksgiving. Lord willing, we will see you again on the next Monday edition of Lifeline. Yours truly, Jesse Gistin. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.